Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Because electric vehicles, they're the initial push into a sustainable future, right? Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Happy Thursday. Thanks for tuning in again. Today's entrepreneur is Teague Egan a young titan with an established track record of successful ventures, investments, and philanthropy who's turned his eye toward the rise of renewable energy. I first came to know Teague through our mutual friend, James Ellsmore, and I thoroughly enjoyed learning about how he has turned his early success into contribution. Today's discussion broadly focuses on the technology Teague's company, EnergyX, is working to bring to market focused on improving the lithium extraction process and vastly lowering the cost. Teague discusses how he stumbled upon the business idea, found the right technology partners, and is currently in trials to commercialize the product. I believe we'll be hearing a lot more of EnergyX, and I invite you today to enjoy this foray into the raw materials side of what many believe is the future most valuable resource on the planet and the current Nobel Prize winner, lithium. If you're a member of the Suncast Guild, keep an eye out for some bonus exclusive material in the coming days that didn't fit into the episode, but is illustrative nonetheless of how Teague is building his company. Remember, you can always find the resources and learn more about today's guest and recommendations, as well as more than 220 other founders' stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. And hey, while you're there, be sure to subscribe to the Suncast Tribe so you can receive weekly insight into the conversations, events, tools, and tips we're curating to help you in your personal and professional pursuit. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, we are going to dive down the rabbit hole and a slightly different variant here today on Suncast around clean energy and the energy storage economy that is all out booming right now. Today, I have the fantastic opportunity to have a high energy, just seems constantly expansive uh, entrepreneur, guy that I've been getting to know named Teague Egan. Teague is the founder and CEO of Energy X. And if you're unfamiliar, well then hold on because we're going to talk all about how lithium and uh, the storage economy are booming in much the same way that the fossil fuel industry did for the last hundred years. So we'll pontificate on that and more. But first, let me say hello to Teague. Welcome to Suncast, my friend. Hey, Nico. How are you? Doing awesome, man. Doing awesome. And uh, it's good to be able to reconnect with you. And it's hard for us to both be uh, stationary and in front of our computers long enough to get uh, 90 minutes. So I'm grateful for your time, man. Thanks for getting up early. I know. It took us how long to schedule this? <laughs> it took a while. It took a while. But that's, that's the nature of these. You'd be surprised they take longer uh, than on the surface, it would seem. One of the things I wanted to, at the outset, give a quick uh, introduction. And you, you've been a pretty successful entrepreneur, fairly young in your career, just barely cracking the 30s here and, and have had uh, several companies uh, and a wide 
background as a serial entrepreneur, both investing, inventing, in philanthropy, it's clear that you have this insatiable hunger to create and to see uh, how your intellect can show up in the world. I'm curious, when did you know that you were an entrepreneur? You know, I, I think I got it from my dad. I grew up eating dinner with him every night, you know, the family dinner table and uh, just listening to his stories and, you know, doing that for the first 18 years of my life, I kind of learned his ways. And he was a serial entrepreneur, starting many different businesses and uh, car rentals, food and beverage. He was in the, uh, the internet and dot-com boom. He was in travel. So I saw him doing all these different things, always coming up with new ideas, trying to figure out how to make things better, more efficient, or solving problems. You know, that kind of rubs off on you. So like say one specific moment when I knew I was an entrepreneur, it was just something that was passed along to me in learning from my dad. Fantastic. What a legacy uh, for you to be able to point back to that early mentorship in your life from your dad. Was your mom also an entrepreneur and, and uh, creating, even if it's the invention of helping you think creatively as a child, how, how was your mom involved in that process? <laughs> no, I actually, my mom is, comes from the engineering side. My mom's dad, my grandpa was an engineer in Tennessee at Oak Ridge National Laboratories where they invented the atom bomb at the Manhattan Project. So her mind is very engineering oriented, very, very detailed, very uh, calculated, which not to say that an entrepreneur is not, but it's kind of, uh, the other side of the spectrum from creativity. So I think that, you know, now in my business with Energy X, it's very engineering and actually chemical engineering oriented. I get that side of my skill set from her. Yeah, I can imagine some very interesting conversations come Thanksgiving and Christmas for your family as you're doing <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah. you're really digging, you're, expl you're exploring the unification of those two family values, right? the curiosity to explore new business models along with the curiosity to explore how engineering can solve detail and calculating problems. That's really fascinating. Do you yeah. remember, and, and I, I can totally respect how um, it might be hard to so go back to that Genesis moment and think, wow, that's probably when I sort of realized it. Not I mean, I was an entrepreneur, but did you have businesses or pseudo businesses like the, the fabled selling candy at school and things like that? Or when, when did you first jump into sort of stumble upon this idea, I'd rather work for myself than work for others. I was never like selling candy or lemonade at school or anything like that. But my first business idea, I was at a, I was at a Miami Dolphins football game. They were playing the New York Jets and it starts pouring outside. And I noticed that everybody was leaving the stadium. And I was like, why, does, why do they not have a roof over the stadium here? Like, you know, so many stadiums have roofs now. I should design a roof for the stadium that could fill all the requirements of sunny South Florida weather, but when it rains can also deal with that too. Something that would let in the breeze, something that was kind of transparent and light, something that could be retrofitted onto the stadium. So I designed this uh, really sophisticated roofing system that was retractable with Teflon material that would kind of fold up with these in these inside of these arches 
my dad had done some business with the owner of the Miami Dolphins. So I kind of had that in. And then I went and uh, subcontracted an engineering firm. And uh, I subcontracted another firm that specialized in retraction. And I put together these designs, hired an architecture firm, and uh, took it all the way up the ladder uh, and presented it to the owner. He kind of put me in touch with the rest of his team. And then he actually ended up selling the team like a year later. And it would have been maybe like an 80 or $100 million project, something that is not that much in terms of stadium construction and building. The new owner, maybe like two years later, put in a roof for the Dolph- for Dolphin Stadium. So obviously it wasn't my design, but it just kind of gave me validation of that idea. Um, and I was maybe a junior in high school when I was designing this. Was the putting together of that proposal for the Dolphins owner something that uh, your family helped with? How'd you raise the money? Where'd you get the money to do that? I really didn't spend very much money doing it. It was yeah, they were they were in on the pro- on the project as as getting compensated if it wins, huh? Yeah, it does. Yeah, you know, it doesn't cost much money to put together a proposal. So that's just the hard work you got to do, right? It sounds like that Dolphin Stadium tractable roof might have been, I'll couch that as like maybe an early failure upon which you were able to build this mindset. Do you remember, or can you tell me a story about how, uh, about your first real success, your first uh, business venture that worked? Yeah. So I had, I had many failures before I had a success, but my first success, I was in college. It was my second year of college. So a few years after the Dolphin Stadium idea, I was with one of my buddies who was, uh, he was a musician. He kind of was a freestyle rapper and he got into a freestyle battle against another guy. And I said, you know, this is amazing. All these people want to walk, like we're watching it happen. They probably had like a hundred people surrounding them as they kind of battled back and forth. And I said, you know, I'm going to start a record label. If all these people want to want to watch this, watch these two guys, they're obviously pretty talented. So I signed one of the guys to uh, a small contract. I think I paid him like $2,500. Flew him out to LA a couple of times because this happened on the, on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And we made an album together uh, of eight songs and put it up on iTunes. And it went number one on iTunes. And I had my record with it will start it. That was kind of my college business. And it was, it was very successful. I mean... We sold, you know, we sold over a million songs on iTunes and, you know, tens of thousands of albums and uh, nationwide tours. They were pretty much all sold out. It was, it was a pretty fun trip. You know, I was in L.A. I was in the entertainment capital of the world. I was, you know, running a successful record label. Did you begin to seek mentors or do you feel like maybe mentors appeared in your life that kind of helped you? Uh assimilate what you, what the next steps needed to be? Or do you feel like you were always constantly just striving to figure out what the next steps are? I never really looked at mentors like mentors. I always looked at more prominent people in my life as potential partners. You know, I had, I definitely had people that were helping me along the way that were kind of team members uh, or partners that I was, that I would bounce ideas off of, but people that then wanted to work with us because working on something successful. Um, you know, I never, I never really looked at them as mentors, which is interesting. I find it remarkable that 
at such an early age, you became not just a successful business owner, but also an investor and philanthropist, uh, investing a lot of your own capital in the 20s, uh, which has certainly uh, put you in a different sphere of, of influence and ability to scale. I'm wondering, uh, sort of as a, a capstone to this segment, what do you feel like maybe sets you apart from your in your childhood, maybe the mindset? What gave you the confidence and momentum? Uh, and maybe a corollary to that question is, was there anything that you feel like set you apart from similarly smart and talented, well-groomed folks that you were surrounded by in college and, and professional life? Yeah, I mean, I was I started investing some of the money that I was making from music and into other startups and uh, small businesses. You know, I had just started a successful small business. I was kind of like, what, you know, I should invest some of this in the stock market. And, you know, I had some big winners in the stock market, but I should also invest into other people's small businesses. And I was kind of naive at that young of an age. You know, I had, I, I picked some winners, but I picked a lot of losers and I definitely wouldn't, you know, I, overall in investing in startups, I would definitely say that I've lost instead of one. I mean, it takes a very sophisticated, you know, just because I had in my first business with, with the record label, I wouldn't even really contribute that to having a good idea. You know, it's, it's something where I, where it was almost lucky, right. That I, that I picked this, this winner. But was it though? That's the thing. That's the thing for me, Tegan is like, I hear what you're saying and I totally get the humility of you saying, I feel like it was kind of luck, but the difference is how many of us stood around watching rap battles in our own colleges and didn't and didn't occur to, to it didn't occur to me I should start a, a record label. In fact, I worked for two record labels, right? Oh wow! There's a there's a different there's a difference that the the idea of I'm going to start this because I think this needs to this needs support and I like if not me who and if not now when right that 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 nexus of idea with preparation or at least with hubris enough to to say I can do this. And I mean, that's, that, that's the entrepreneurial mindset, right? That goes back to your first question mm-hmm. about where did I get it? That's just my mindset, right? Yeah. Well, tell me about your first experience and maybe exposure to clean energy or maybe broadly we'll say the energy transition and how you decided that's where you wanted to focus the next phase of your career. That's a good transition because I kind of went through this investing phase and you know I wasn't too successful at it. I still have a lot of capital deployed in startups. Some are doing good, others have failed really savvy investor, uh, like a lot of these venture capitalists are, takes years of experience and seeing seeing the field and, and kind of understanding teams and understanding business models. And that's just not something that I had going into investing. So realized that investing wasn't necessarily for me. And I kind of got the entrepreneurial bug again. My dad suggested that instead of putting my capital and my money, my, my hard-earned money into other people's ideas, I needed to do it again myself. And what he said is, you should write down your five passions, five industries that you think are going to be uh, the biggest industries of the future. So I did this exercise that he suggested and wrote a full page on each. My passions were space. I've always just been enamored in space. Like space and, exploration. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Astronomy was probably my favorite subject in college. Uh, sports, you know, I'm a huge, huge sports fan. Energy was one of them. You know, I invested in Tesla back in 2013. It was like $40 a share. That must and have been well. <laughs> saw, that, saw that meteoric rise and, you know, 
bought a Tesla soon thereafter with some of those profits and uh, just been following along and everything he's doing. And it's exciting, you know, it's, it's exciting to say the least, but it's also yeah. turned into a passion of mine since mm-hmm. 2013 when I made that investment. And uh, then, then my future industries were uh, space, uh, you know, everything that we do right now, the fact that we're talking over Zoom is because of satellites in space. Right. Energy, you know, this transition to renewable energy is just going to be one of the biggest waves of our lifetime. Artificial intelligence is going to play a huge role in the future. Yeah. Uh, I think that blockchain and the idea of a decentralized ledger of uh, the way that people agree on things is, is really big, you know, Bitcoin being a part of that. But the underlying technology kind of the way that the internet is under not underlying technology for so many industries now like banking or, you know, communication. I think blockchain is going to be big. And then I think synthetic biology is going to be really big. Um, like personalized medicine and the way that people can treat their body for disease on, on a personalized level based on their genome is going to be really big. So those were my five future industries. And, uh, you know, I just didn't know too much about, artificial intelligence and synthetic biology and you know blockchain is kind of uh it's big and a lot of people are getting into it but you know i just it's not a passion of mine but mm-hmm. space and energy were two that crossed over so i had this i, I was like okay you know that's very interesting those are pro- that's probably where i want to be right and then a few months later i was traveling down in south america I was there for New Year's and then I kind of, it was my first time down in the continent mm. and I went to Bolivia, which is a pretty random place, <laughs> um, <laughs> but just like, kind of like a place off the unbeaten path, right? That's that, that curiosity in me, like, well, what's in Bolivia, right? It's a place that probably not very many people go. So I went there and there's this, there's this absolutely gorgeous place. It's the world's largest salt flat and all you see for a thousand miles it's just flat white salt. It makes for a pretty good Instagram picture too. So it turns out uh, my tour guide tells us that this is the world's largest lithium reserve. I was like, well, that's pretty interesting. Like our whole electronic and battery ecosystem and moving into electric vehicles are all made with lithium ion batteries. So if you kind of go up the value chain, a lot of batteries and a lot of batteries need a lot of battery materials and you know lithium's the most important battery materials like this is seems like a huge opportunity here and then i found out how the lithium is produced mm-hmm. uh, from these lithium uh, you know to me it was a lithium mine right and the way that they produce the lithium is like a thousand year old technology yeah that's it comes from salt right it's lithium yeah. is a t- is a form of salt I mean, I had my opportunity right in front of me, you know, and something I kind of just stumbled upon. And it was, it was that same feeling of being at that Dolphins game and recognizing the problem. Uh, Maybe not quite the same, but it was, that was my aha moment. That was my. When you were there with the tour guide, were you asking like, well, this is the largest lithium reserve. Like how do they extract the lithium? Yeah. Yeah. Of course I was. He didn't really know much about it. Um, Uh, He's like, this is just one of my talking points, dude. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's completely. But he said, he said, you know, a lot of people think that this could be the next Saudi Arabia, obviously in relation to their oil. Bolivia has the largest lithium reserve in the world. So 
if batteries and energy storage becomes, you know, our, our next really true form of renewable energy, um, lithium is going to play a key role in that. So, you know, I, I obviously went home and did <laughs> you, just, you do your thing, you start researching research yeah. on this. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's that's remarkable um, on a number of fronts, but you know, you're there just uh, kind of letting your hair down, uh, exploring, traveling, not expecting to come across an idea. Again, the synthesis of ideas for you is one of the telltale signs, you know, that I've noticed among entrepreneurs that think at scale. And you hear a talking point that millions of other tourists have heard, but for you, it translated into the next Saudi Arabia, which is essentially yeah, to say, right. like, like this is going to be a resource problem, and we can get into space faster if we have a way to extract lithium better and more yeah, and more yeah. efficiently. So you don't know you you don't know anything about lithium uh, extraction, etc. Help me understand the next steps that you took. This is, as I understand it, this is, you know, like 18 months ago, about two years, almost two years ago now, right? The next step that I took was, you know, I did, I did a lot of research and then I found out how the lithium was extracted mm -hmm. and it's, they literally get the lithium through a natural evaporation process. So first I need to understand like what he meant by, you know, this is a lithium reserve because it wasn't, you know, I thought lithium was like a silver metal. Which it is in its final like form. Like an ore, like you dig it, like, like they do in right, like an Australia. Ore, right? <laughs> and that, that is one way that they get lithium. Lithium is like in ore and then they have to leach it out. But the other way is lithium, you know, is an ion. Uh, it's, it's the lightest metal on the periodic table. And, and in just that lithium ion form, it, it's, it's in the salt brine. So it's in really salty waters. So like think about ocean water, right? That salt, that salt's actually made up of different ions. So different other uh, ion, other salt ions are like potassium, magnesium, calcium. So all of those form this salt in the really salty water. Uh, and this salt brine is 20 to 40% salt compared to ocean water, which is three or three and a half percent salt, right? So there's a lot of different salts in this. And the objective is, okay, how do I separate out just the lithium from the rest of these salts to make the product? And the way they do it is they pump it out from, you know, the aquifers or the reservoirs below uh, the crust. Um, and they put it into these massive evaporation ponds and they let the sun evaporate out the H2O and then the salts precipitate out one by one. So it sits in the first pond and then the water evaporates and the sodium, which is Na on the periodic table, precipitates out to the bottom and then they pump all the water to the next pond and they have all this salt that they then scrape out of the bottom. And then the next pond, uh, potassium precipitates out, which is K on the periodic table. And then they pump all the water to the next pond and then they scrape all that out. And finally, at the end, they have lithium, right? Uh, or the lithium's more concentrated. And then they send it to final processing where they can get lithium salt. And I was just like this, you know, when I found out that that is the way that it was done and that whole process takes 18 months and it only recovers 30% of the available lithium because the lithium will co-precipitate out with other salts. So like when magnesium comes out, 
a lot of lithium will attach to it and come out with it. And that leaves that lithium use because it's not a pure product. Uh, it's, you know, they're not called lithium magnesium ion batteries, right? <laughs> so you need lithium, you need pure lithium, right? So I, I was thinking to myself just very logically, like first, the fact that they do it this way is just archaic. But lithium really hadn't been very highly demanded until now. You know, we were entering this remarkable transition where sustainability and climate change is like a super hot topic item. And we're figuring out what needs to be done to transition to sustainable energy. So, you know, they only needed, you know, tens of thousands of tons of lithium on an annual basis for all its different uses. Now we need millions of tons of lithium to make all these batteries for electric cars. It takes 10,000 iPhone batteries to make one electric vehicle battery. So you just need orders of magnitude. Which explains why the, the lithium extraction companies in Australia have been doing so well in the international markets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I said to myself, what is a be- there has to be a better way to do this. And it was just logical. Why not come up with some sort of filter that you just put the, the salt brine through and it could separate out all these different ions, these different salts, an automated or a mechanical way. Yeah. Uh, so that was the idea. Sort of the idea that, that exists within like a hydrogen fuel cell, right? There's a membrane that separates out the hydrogen. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it was kind of a situation of right place, right time. I read a paper, an academic paper, like a month or two later. It was talking about the first breakthrough of a membrane, a material that could selectively target different ions in a mixture and it could separate lithium from the rest. And I was like, that, that's exactly what I need. Uh, I immediately emailed all of the authors of the paper, which happened to also be the inventors of the technology. And I was able to go license all of this technology from the inventors that worked at uh, universities to be able to commercially develop this technology. So I want to, I just want to pause there for a minute and put a, and put a, just highlight the fact that you you seem to have this insatiable curiosity such that, I mean, what was the journal that you were reading to find this paper? It was Science Advances. Science Advances. Frankly, I've never heard of Science Advances. I think that it's remarkable to me as I've heard this story a couple of times as we've gone through it and, and I begin to understand it better. You seem to have a real uh, analytical process for research. But there's, so there's two things that I really am curious to explore here around this licensing specifically, because I, I think I, I'm trying to paint the picture here of the entrepreneurial process. And I really love that you're going into such detail, Teague. It's, it's fascinating for me. I got to put myself in the shoes of these scientists, right? They're working, you know, and it also is not lost to me. Your, your, your mom uh, came from a national lab. You have probably a bit of understanding through that of how technologies come to market. You reach out to these scientists. They see, hey, entrepreneur probably have no idea through the veil of, of, of email, like who you are or where you're coming from. But entrepreneur is interested in this technology. Can you help me understand the process you went through? For licensing? Because as I understand, you now have a license for this technology globally. I had never been through this process before. And it was pretty complicated because there are actually three universities or institutions involved in the IP, the intellectual property around the invention. 
I first needed to convince them that I was kind of the man for the job, right? So they see my background. They see I have this venture capital firm. It's called Innovation Factory. I, you know, have a little bit of a reputation of success. So, you know, I kind of have that, you know, I, I get the meeting, right? In this specific situation, you have to realize that professors in academia, being in academia is far different than being in industry. And they invent things uh, for the sake of inventing them, right? The whole way academic life works is you kind of work on fundamental research of of a new invention or kind of an invention, And then you write a paper on it, which is exactly what they had done. And then if your paper gets published in a prestigious journal, like science, the two, the two biggest are really science and nature. Um, and the article I'd read was in science. So this was kind of like a big discovery. And it was kind of widely acclaimed within the scientific circles. You then go apply for grant funding, governments, and, and that's what funds more research. And that's kind of the, the cyclical life cycle of universities, right? So they're always looking to license out their inventions and their IP to companies to try to commercialize it. Now, whether those are big corporations that have a history of this or startups, you know, not indifferent to them, but they just want to license it out and try to see it come to fruition, right? So they're looking to, they're looking to license it. So that was you know, the first good thing for me. The second thing is, okay, now that I'm in conversations with these people, I need to prove to them that I'm the right guy for the job. You know, that was just an effort of me going to who I thought could be the end user, which is ultimately the big lithium companies and trying to make those connections. So I was literally sending out cold emails to, you know, I was doing research online. I was on LinkedIn, you know, who works at these companies? Like, how do I get in touch with the right people? Just pretty much knocking down doors. I got in touch with a few of the biggest lithium companies out there, uh, was able to show the inventors and the universities like, look, these are some of the connections that I have. Uh, These are the people that I'd be bringing this to. Um, You know, I'm I'm your guy. I'm the man for the job. Ultimately, um, I was able to convince them of that, but it was a very long process. You know, it was, uh, it it literally took me, I think, uh, October to May. It took me, call it seven months, get this licensing deal done because I also had to get these three institutions to agree to what's called an inter-institutional agreement, right? So how do the three different universities govern the way that a royalty is split amongst them? So that deal had to happen before they could legally license the technology out to a third party. They have to have their you know, situation all squared away. I was able to get them to do that simultaneously and then negotiate the terms of my license and license it to me right after they there. You know, I, I had a lawyer help me with all, with all of that stuff. You know, it's, uh, you know, earlier in the convo, I was talking about experience and writing contracts and all that stuff. And, but now I know how to do it. Right. And I have these, these forms. So now I'm working on more licensing deals and I don't need to pay the lawyer uh, a ton of money, but that was my first, first time going down that path. So I definitely had professional help. Hey, warrior. In this fast-paced change of renewables, what inverter company can you really count on these days? 
Well, how about CPS America with its 99% inverter availability guarantee? That's right, you can get 5 to 25 year uptime guaranteed by CPS. And CPS has a turnkey field service with both preventative and corrective maintenance. And service plans tuned to meet the needs of asset owners and O&M providers alike. If you'd like to find out more about what CPS can do for your C&I and utility business, head to mysuncast.com forward slash CPS. Hey, commercial solar friends, you've probably heard that 2020 starts the solar plus decade. Well, that doesn't just mean solar plus storage. It means solar plus intelligent software like DemandX, extensible energy's demand charge reduction software that inexpensively reduces demand and time of use charges by 30% without batteries or extra permitting. By including DemandX software in your proposals, you'll increase customer ROI, shorten payback times, and help close more commercial solar and storage deals. Contact Extensible Energy at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast for a free demand charge analysis for your commercial solar project and start closing more sales in the Solar Plus decade. What do you think is the number one headache for you as an entrepreneur? Every single day, there's ups and downs, um, and there are things that you have to overcome. And you know, you're you're the last. You you have to be the ultimate problem solver, right? Everybody that works for you or works with you gonna bring their problems to you. Um, on Friday at five o'clock, when it's the weekend, and you know your COO or your VP of technology comes to your office and, and says, you know, the membrane isn't working, but uh, have a good weekend. <laughs> You're sitting there like, okay, what, what am I supposed to do? You know, you have to go figure out this problem. Just in my business, you know, EnergyX is a very small company, you know, and, and every single person is a very important team member. I've already had to deal with, you know, team members quitting, people, you know, having medical issues and not being able to work for months. Really important integral people that uh, I, I rely on losing my chief science officer, for instance, is like a huge hit to the company. And my whole company is, is dependent on his science, right? Like, what am I supposed to do? So the entrepreneurial life is one of ups and downs. And it's, you know, if, if it were easy, everybody would do it, right? One of the things that I'm thinking about through this licensing and, and really wanting to understand the technology and the applicability is of course, in Bolivia, it's the largest uh, lithium reserve in the world, but there are thousands of, uh, of salt lakes. We have one huge one here in the United States. Is, are they all created equal? Is this process something that can be applied in sc- at scale to other similar reserves? It ultimately has to do with the chemical composition of salt brine. That has to do with the volcanic formation that was created hundreds of millions of years ago. Uh, underneath, right? So when it rains, the water comes down, you know, in a mountain or whatever it is, and it kind of, it on a macro level, funnels towards the ocean, right? So it goes from high to low. And along that path, the water uh, may pick up little salts that are on the rock or on the, you know, volcanic formation. That is what creates salt water, right? The answer to your question is no, they're not all created equal. Some of the salt lakes in the U.S. Uh, or areas where there's water, underground water, do have 
high lithium concentrations, but not near the concentrations of the lithium triangle, which is the area down in South America between Chile, Bolivia, and Argentina. So that's, you know, South America, the huge mountain range, the Andy mountain range that runs through the whole continent. And uh, that just has really, really high concentrations of lithium because of that volcanic formation. So, so the way that it's all calculated and measured, uh, a metric called PPM, which stands for parts per million, that is calculated how many part if one liter liquid has one million parts, uh, how many how many parts of that are different elements? So if the salt brine down in the lithium triangle is twenty to forty percent salt, that would mean that let's just say it's thirty, for example. That means that seven hundred thousand of that would be H two O molecules. 300,000 would be different salts, which is a pretty saturated solution. I don't know if you remember back in, mm-hmm. you know, what was that like eighth grade uh, science where you would put salt into uh, water and you would see how saturated you could get it before the water couldn't, before salt, it to separate, salt yeah. couldn't dissolve anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So the 300,000 are salts and those are all different salts. And the lithium part of that down in, the lithium triangle is anywhere from like on the low range, 300, but in some parts of Chile, it's, you know, on average, maybe 1500. And then some high end is 6,000, but it's call it 1500 parts per million. So out of a million different pieces of this one liter, uh, which is, you know, think of it like uh, a bottle of water, a liter, one liter bottle of water, you have 1,500 pieces of lithium, which is very small, but uh, relatively, that's a very high concentration of lithium. Teague, what I'm trying to understand here, and thank you for that uh, explanation. I definitely needed the, the, the return to the primer on uh, parts per million. Are the salt lakes comparable? It sounds like 30%, like you said, is a high saturation. Salt lakes, if I recall uh, our previous conversations, is less than 10 for sure, less than five maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure the exact concentration of the salt lakes, but uh, they definitely have a lot less lithium. Yeah. Some of the higher lithium concentrations in the U.S. is the Salton Sea and the geothermal brines there. There's a few other places in like Texas and Arkansas that have some uh, high lithium concentrations, but comparatively, they're nowhere near the lithium triangle. T, I love uh, lots of things about the the business that you're building. One of the things that I want to make sure that we do cover is since you've gotten this, secured this license, and you're in the process of deploying the de- technology, where my mind goes is, okay, how do you further partner down the value stream? Are you going to begin going into extraction, or are you therefore going to license the technology that you guys bring to market to others who would utilize it in various parts of the world? What's your go-to-market for that? Yeah, exactly. So we're, we look at ourselves as a technology company. So we're just trying to develop this technology to a place that it can be manufactured and deployed to others. Uh, we don't plan on owning a lithium resource ourselves and building our own facility. We're going to have partners that manufacture the technology at scale that are already experts to do that and manufacture other types of membranes for things like reverse osmosis stuff like that the big lithium producers will ultimately buy the technology and use it 
on site where they, you know, own those lithium resources. That makes a lot of sense. Are you close to that? How far away do you feel like you are for getting uh, that technology deployed and into the market? It's a little bit longer of a timeline than I would like. So we have about nine months left of scaling the technology to a point of commercialization. And then after that, we will build our first pilot plant, which is an on-site uh, pilot plant, something that kind of fits in uh, one skid-mounted container, you know, like a container that will go on a ship and ship down to South America. Then once that pr is proved out, which will probably be a 12-month process, you know, that'll take three to six months to build, and then six months of testing. Uh, you need, you know, long-term durability testing. Then they'll uh, make a facility that is 100 times bigger than that, which will be considered a demonstration plant. And then if all things uh, smoothly with that, we'll move into a commercial size plant, which is, you know, 10,000 times bigger than uh, the pilot plant. Yeah, so it sounds like it's feasible that within, you know, the next 12 to 16 months, maybe, you'll have a commercial oper operation. One of your partners will be utilizing this process to extract lithium from these, uh, from these brine reserves. Well, it just depends on what, like, the definition of commercial, right? So mm. typically the, a commercial plant means something that's, that's operating on, on a commercial level. A pilot plant, a proof of concept on site, right? So that's ah, okay. what's in 12, 12 to 16 months. It's like, you know, the size of a car or something, you know, one okay. container. A commercial plant is something that's manufacturing 10 or 20,000 tons of lithium. Uh, and that is, you know, a couple of years away. And currently in global production, how many thousand tons are being extracted per year using this relatively archaic method, both mining and uh, brine extraction? Yeah. So between hard rock and brine extraction... 2018, there was 270,000 tons produced. Estimates have 2025 demand, year 2025, between 1 million and 1.5 million. So you're looking at, you know, a four to six X increase in demand over the next five or so years. Unbelievable. And so what does salt brine extraction do for uh, speeding up that process and reducing global cost of lithium? The current uh, mix between hard rock and salt brine is about 50 50. Uh, just because salt brine, the, the lead time, like I said, is 18 months to know how much you're going to need. There's also the low recovery rates. Uh, so they're pretty much economically equal right now, all, all factors considered. Uh, if we can introduce this technology into the salt brine, I think that we're going to see a huge shift away from hard rock towards salt brine uh, because hard rock won't be able to compete economically. The ceiling is a lot higher for technology introduction and adaption into salt brine. You also know exactly where the lithium is, right? Hard rock involves exploration risk. So, you know, how much is, how much is there in a, in a mine where you're just continuing to dig? You might dig it all out and not know when to stop. In salt brine, it's like, okay, this is the concentration of of the of the brine, I could see on two fronts. One, where the hard mine, hard rock mine, uh, and for those who are unfamiliar with the difference between hard rock and brine, we're not going to get into that today. We do have that in uh, in our Suncast Guild um, membership. We're going to uh, release some of the other conversations I've had with Teague, where we cover uh, a lot more than this, including the whole uh, like TRL process and branding, etc. But I could see a world where 
the hard rock uh, miners um, try to put up certain barriers to your success. But I'm also curious on the flip side, what are the barriers to entry from someone else coming in and doing what you're trying to do in terms of brine extraction? You know, everybody recognizes that new technology is going to be needed to meet the 2025 demand. Natural evaporation is not going to be the ultimate answer. Uh, And this is an industry ripe for disruption. So there are other competitors looking at direct lithium extraction from brine. There are small, there are subtleties in the differences of, of their approach to our approach. Some of them are using kind of like an absorption type process where uh, the lithium is, is absorbed in the kind of a sponge, think of it, and then released, uh, which creates a batch type system. That, that process also needs a lot of fresh water to operate and it needs a lot of chemicals to, to clean the sponge. And for those reasons, we think our process is better because it's a continuous process where the brine just flows through the membrane uh, and separates out what we need. And we don't need fresh water. We don't need uh, chemicals to clean it. It's a lot to think about. And I guess one of the things I think uh, is insightful that I'd love to hear from you as a CEO and, and you know, leading this commercialization process, how do you not boil the ocean, right? How do you personally focus your time and attention? All day, every day, I'm thinking about this. You know, I, right now I'm working 16, 18 hour days. Uh, I wake up at six and start working, and then I go to bed at, at midnight. And it's, uh, it's right now, it's really all I care about is making Energy X successful. You know, I have no social life right now. I just think about this all day, every day. We talked a bit about the, you know, your father and mother and how they in some ways were mentors and guides for you. I wonder what other key lessons or takeaways for you, uh, you have been imparted on you by mentors in your life or career that you, you take a sort of, uh, wisdom. Life's a journey, right? And, and if you're not learning along the way, what are you doing? You know, people think of school as, as the only time in their life where they've learned, but I, I learn something, you know, every day on a consistent basis. And if, if you're not taking that with you, then you should kind of reevaluate. And whether it's a mentor or a partner or uh, a team member or just somebody that you meet that you have an interesting conversation with, there, you know, there's usually something to be learned and you are kind of a collection of your learnings. So I try to apply everything that I've learned along the way, whether I've used it yet or not. Um, I kind of have it in my bag of tricks. I need to pull on it. Teague, looking out around the corner here, what has you the most excited right now in the clean energy business? Uh, you know, what's next? What corners are you looking around? You know, in terms of Energy X, I'm really excited for these next four to six months of commercialization and scaling that we're working on. It's going to be really head down in the laboratory with the scientists, um, testing a lot of different things and figuring out the most optimal formulation of our membrane and our technology. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. More broadly, COP25 just happened in Madrid. You know, a lot of exciting things came from that. Some, some other big partnerships were just announced between LG and GM. They're building a $2.3 billion battery factory in Ohio to produce batteries for all the new GM electric vehicles. You know, obviously Tesla just announced their Cybertruck, which is at a few hundred thousand pre-orders in the first few weeks. And, you know, that is really a remarkable feat of engineering 
aside from just the fact that it's an electric vehicle, which in and of itself is an engineering feat that now you're seeing every other auto manufacturer copy the true engineering behind the cyber truck uh, is a totally different way to make a car. So every car that you see on the road are different panels that are stamped that have a lot of curves and they're mostly made of aluminum. The cyber truck is one huge sheet of steel that's 30 times rolled, which creates incredible strength and then is just folded into the cyber truck, which is why the lines uh, look like they do and it has no curves. And that dramatically decreases the cost of manufacturing in, uh, in the assembly line. And it also doesn't have paint, which is one of the biggest bottlenecks to producing uh, low cost cars. Paint takes a long time to dry and it's very expensive. So I look at what Tesla is doing on top of creating an electric vehicle, that model. Because electric vehicles are going to be one of the biggest, I mean, they're, they're the initial push into a sustainable future, right? Internal combustion cars create probably the most uh, CO2 emissions, right? So if we can move to electric cars, we're taking a big chunk of CO2 emissions out, right? And the other things that Tesla is doing to, to push forward um, electric cars, I mean, they've already proven that, that the battery is, is feasible, right? And we're seeing it. You know, every car company adopts that, but now the other things that they're introducing, I think are going to make a huge push into the sector. Well, for sure, Tesla is once again, breaking the mold in terms of what engineering looks like for both platform and individual unit economics. And uh, the Cybertruck has, uh, has done exactly, I think, what Elon and his team wanted it to do, which is uh, create as much controversy in the market as possible about something that they say that they are going to prove is not only possible and feasible, but economical. Turning the corner here as we wrap up, I love to get inside the thought process of how you, uh, as, a, as a business person, entrepreneur, feed your mind. I believe that readers are leaders. I'd love to know if you have any particular books that you've gifted or that have impacted you deeply and why. Yeah, I love reading books. I wish I had more time to read right now, but the, uh, the last book I read it's called The Big Thirst, and it's all about water. A lot of people take water for granted, especially in the United States. How the water gets to our shower, our sink, uh, toilets. Is this Charles Fishman? The you big know, that's one aspect of it. Yeah, yeah, Charles okay. Fishman. Uh, it's an amazing book. It's just like you just don't think about water, and water is really the essence of life. And it's uh, it's a really a magical thing that the water in our Earth's ecosystem. So I just learned so many incredible things from, from that book. So that was a pretty fun read. Fantastic. Is there anything currently waiting on your nightstand that you'll, you'll hopefully be getting to over the holidays? I just bought Thomas Edison's biography. I think it's by Walter Isaacson. I could be wrong. Yeah, but Thomas Edison's obviously one of the greatest inventors of all time. So Teague, uh, I wonder, is there a habit or practice beyond reading that for you has created the greatest impact on your life? I take my exercise and health very seriously. I feel like that is my kind of time to get away and, and clear my mind. I don't listen to music when I exercise. I just, I just like to think about, I spend a lot of time thinking. You know, I say I work 16, 18 hour days, but of that, I, I really, I'm not like typing on a computer that whole time. I, 
I think a lot. I think through different problems. I think about different solutions. I think, um, and, and working out is a good time to think. You a morning workout or an evening workout kind of? Really, really both. You know, I just make sure that I get in the gym for one hour a day. Beyond energyx.com, how can people find you and learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, energyx.com is, is a good uh, website, but I'm also on all social media. Just, you know, I have a pretty unique name. So type in Teague Egan. Is it at Teague Egan? And, yeah, just at Teague Egan on, 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 I think, everything. You know, there's not too many t- other Teagans out there. So I got that. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. And we'll, uh, we'll link certainly to your LinkedIn profile. And, uh, you know, you've been very active of late on LinkedIn and even on Instagram. Uh, a lot of fun stuff that you're posting on Instagram through your travels and the work that you guys are working on with EnergyX. I encourage folks to check all of those out. Well, let's end today, Teague, with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, th- I think you're going to see a lot of these lithium companies make a big splash in 2020. Uh, it's, it's, you're just now starting to see the auto manufacturers roll off electric vehicles off the line. And, you know, right now, Tesla is really the only big one. You don't see electric Fords or all electric uh, Volkswagen buses that are coming out. You don't see, you know, all electric GMs. I think that this, this upcoming decade is just going to see so many electric vehicles and that's going to drive lithium companies to really greater heights. Teague Egan is the CEO and founder of EnergyX, EnergyX.com, a uh, groundbreaking new technology, the extraction of lithium from salt brine. And uh, Teague, we are uh, on pins and needles anxious to see how this technology is commercialized. Thank you for coming and spending some time with the Suncast audience. Thanks, Nico. All right, solar and climate warriors, that's a wrap on today's episode. But I suspect that you'll want to go learn more about Teague and EnergyX. If you are eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every discussion, along with the social media links, book recommendations, and more over on the blog at mysuncast.com. While you're there, please invest another two minutes of your valuable time to give us the feedback that we so crave in our listener survey. We're learning a lot about how to make this show better for you each and every week. So take the survey at mysuncast.com. I hope you'll tune in next week as I have my first ever guest from the fabled Rocky Mountain Institute, Mr. Chris Burgess, where we'll be discussing RMI's role in the rollout of renewables in the Caribbean. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.